0: Like, what do you enjoy about Arlington?
1: It's vibrant. It's cl- close into the city. It's very accessible. It's got a lot going on. Uh, and It's just a very vibrant community. I really like the downtown life and um, how city-like it is, but also the people that are around, the young professionals. It's really nice to have people around that are about the same age and have the same kind of career goals and actually just personal goals in life that I do.
0: Now, is there anything that you feel, uh, besides the library, that could be improved? I don't like to
1: criticize Arlington or say bad things about Arlington. My negative thing that I don't really like about Arlington is the stigma I feel like people have um, about the, I guess I would say the people that live here. Because since we're all younger, um, we tend to get that that party scene, or sometimes what people call the bro aspect, which is like a lot of people that only go to the bars and only care about going to the bars, which isn't the case. Okay,
0: is there anything that you don't like about Arlington? It's expensive. Expensive. Okay.
1: One other thing that I don't like—that's negative—is <laughs> um, how expensive it can be to live here. It really, is expensive. And how
0: do you feel uh, Arlington can improve? Um, I live Arlington. I think it could be a little bit more multicultural, though.
1: Homelessness is certainly a problem uh, throughout America, and it's—it's it's Arlington's not immune to that. So, <clears throat> it certainly would be great to end homelessness throughout the entire country, and Arlington's part of that. But I'm not sure I have the—the
0: the ideal solution for that. Have you noticed that like homelessness is a problem in this area at all? No,
1: no, not at all. That's actually never been a problem.
0: Um, now when you think of like church, what is the first thing that comes to mind? Um, community. I haven't really seen a huge presence um, of church in Arlington. I think it would be cool if there was, um, but like I said, I haven't seen any. Maybe if they were doing um, Food runs or stuff like that. I think that'd be really cool to get involved in, but I haven't seen it so far. <laughs> like, what's the first thing that comes to mind when you think of like churches in Arlington?
1: Oh, the churches offer a
0: lot of uh, charitable services here in Arlington. Food, clothing. Do you feel like the local church uh, in this Arlington community could have an impact on making Arlington a better place?
1: Yes, I mean, I should tell you that I'm on the vestry of my church, so I have particular views about that, but um, yes, uh, I, I, I wish more people attended church than do in Arlington, by and large.
0: Um, now, is there anything that you feel like a local church in this area could do to make like, the Arlington community a better place to live in, like for families, etc.? Um, probably just letting us know of any of their services. I feel like, I don't know, so maybe if you had, like, posters or something like that, just to, like, spread awareness of what you're doing.
2: Morning, everybody, and welcome to a new series that we're starting here today called Build Your Kingdom. And I'm telling you right off the bat, I'm warning you, I am pumped. Are you pumped up today? If you're pumped up today, tell me that you're pumped. Say, I'm pumped. Pumped. We're pumped up here today, all right? Because we got something exciting going on because usually what I do at the beginning of a series is I tell you how excited I am about what God is going to do through this series. But this is the first time that I get to say the opposite. This time I'm excited about what God has already done, and this series is just my way of telling you and proclaiming to the entire universe the great work that God has done here in our church, in our community, and he's doing all over the world, because what we are talking about is the kingdom of God and building God's kingdom. Before I get into the details, let's take a step back and answer ourselves a question. What is the kingdom? When I say building God's kingdom... Like, what is the kingdom of God? Is it something physical? Is it something that you can actually build? Like, isn't the kingdom of God just like a conceptual idea, just like a concept that people have in their minds, and it's like their place of happiness or whatever it may be? Can I actually build God's kingdom in a real and practical way? Well, every time you say the Lord's Prayer... You actually say, Lord, thy kingdom come. What is it that you're saying? When you pray, Lord, your kingdom come, what is it that you are actually praying? Here's what we're going to start off with today, and hopefully spend the rest of today and the next few weeks unpacking this that the kingdom of God is real, even though it's unseen. The kingdom of God is real even though it is unseen. So the kingdom of God is not just something that we are to pray about or to think about, or it's like our happy place that when we die, we hopefully get there. Jesus, our Lord Jesus Christ, believed in a place called the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, and it was very, very real to him, even though it cannot be seen. Let me give you a verse. Luke chapter 17, verse 20 and 21. Now when he, he being Jesus... When Jesus was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God does not come with observation, nor will they say, See here or see there, for indeed the kingdom of God is within you. What do you gather from the way Jesus responded to these people? What was their question? Every question has a who, what, where, when, how, or why. What was their question? Their question was what? About the kingdom of God. What were they asking about it? it was When? They were asking a when question. They were asking the kingdom of God, when is it going to come? And did Jesus respond with a time? What did Jesus respond and say? He basically said, dum-dum, it's here right now. Like he described, as, as, as someone said, a place. I said, when is the church going to be here? And he responded with, the church is located at this and this address. Meaning, dummy. It's already here. We're not talking about when the kingdom of God is coming. We're talking about where the kingdom of God is because it's already here. And Jesus believed that the kingdom of God is as real as you and I are real. But it's unseen. But things don't need to be seen to be real, do they? Like you can have things that are invisible that are real. Don't you, when you say the Apostles' Creed, the Orthodox Creed, we say we believe in one God, God the Father, the Pantecator, the Creator of all things, seen and unseen so every time you pray the creed you declare your faith in an unseen world i believe that there are many things in this world unseen i believe there are many things in this room unseen you know one of which one of the things that's in this room that you believe in that is real but is unseen my brain okay god too very good okay but my brain you believe that i have a brain in my head don't you yes this is the right answer okay (laughs) affirmative no delay that was not a trick question You believe I have a brain in my head. Can you see it? No, you can't see it, but that doesn't make it not real. Because with the naked eye, you cannot see the brain. You need a special instrument. Okay, and you know, like something that they can put inside your body to see your brain. Same thing with my heart. You cannot see my heart. But if you had a special tool, you could see my heart. Because my heart is real. And just because you can't see it with this tool, doesn't mean that there's not other tools where you can't see it. Well, the kingdom of God is the same way. The kingdom of God is as real as these walls are real, as this computer is real, as, as, as my fingers are real. But just because I can't see it with this tool, these eyes are a tool which cannot see it. And that's the problem with these guys. They're saying, when is the kingdom coming? Because they're looking for a certain type of kingdom. Guns, army, palaces, horses, soldiers. They're looking for that. So when is this going to come? And Jesus is saying, y'all don't get it. The kingdom of God is here right now. Because anywhere that Jesus is king is the kingdom of God. Logic. What does it mean to say the kingdom? uh, We have some people visiting us from United Kingdom, right? Okay, from across the pond over there. So the United Kingdom, the kingdom of England, all right, is what we'll call it for today. The kingdom of England is anywhere that there's a piece of land where this queen, right, is sovereign. Am I right? Okay, good. (laughs) Anywhere that this person rules is part of the kingdom. So if Jesus is the ruler in my heart, then my heart is part of the kingdom of God. If Jesus is the ruler in my home, my home is part of the kingdom of God. If Jesus is ruler in my workspace, in my cubicle, if Jesus is king, then that's part of the kingdom of God. And it is our job, as we pray, thy kingdom come, to expand the kingdom of God. Every single day to make more places on earth where Jesus is king. And then there's another place we make Jesus king over here. And it is our job to expand the real unseen but real kingdom of God by making him king over more area every single day of our lives. That's because we have two roles in the kingdom. We have a role as a citizen of the kingdom and an ambassador of the kingdom. A citizen of the kingdom means that our primary role is to be a good law-abiding citizen of the kingdom, all right? To be a, a, a citizen of the kingdom of England, all right? You obey the laws of England, all right? And whatever the queen tells you, you do it. So to be a citizen, we abide by the laws that God teaches us. And that's good, but that's only half of our role. The second half of our role is to be an ambassador. What's an ambassador do? An ambassador goes outside the kingdom and represents the kingdom of God. And that is our call, too is to be firmly planted inside the kingdom, but then to go outside those walls and to tell everybody about our kingdom and to teach people why it is to their benefit to join our kingdom. Because we have a mission, as it says right there in 2 Corinthians 5.20, that we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. We are the ambassadors as if Christ is pleading through us. And if I see a spot on this earth where the kingdom of God does not exist, then I am Christ in that spot. I'm the ambassador, and I say, as if God himself was pleading through me, saying, be reconciled to God. Be part of the kingdom. This is the greatest kingdom on earth, and I'm telling you, I read the end of this story. I've seen the end of the movie. This kingdom wins in the end. You're part of any other kingdom? I'm telling you, that kingdom is going down. I've seen the last page of the book. This kingdom is the one that wins, and it's our job <clears throat> to be citizen and ambassador. And in fact, if you were not an ambassador... You cannot be a good citizen. It's either both or none. Because citizen means abide by the laws. So if one of the laws is be an ambassador and you choose not to be an ambassador, then you're no more a good citizen. Like if I have, you know, two two sons. I have a good son and a bad son. So I say to my good son, you know, do this and he does it. Do this and he does it. Do this and he does it. That makes him good son. But if I say, go be nice to your brother, and he refuses to do that, he's no longer the good son. Because he has disobeyed my call to be an ambassador. Verse 20 in 2 Corinthians 5 says, be an ambassador. Look at the verse right before that, verse 18 and 19. Tells us why we should be ambassadors of the kingdom. It says, now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. Did you hear that? God welcomed me into his kingdom, and now it is our job to pass it forward, pass it on, and welcome someone else into the kingdom. That is, that was God in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. We, as part of this kingdom, it is our job, listen carefully what I'm going to say, don't misunderstand me, to take over the world. And it is our job to spread the kingdom and take over the world. But our kingdom does not expand by force, our kingdom does not expand by violence or by forcing people to join. Our kingdom expands by love. And it is our job to use our weapon of love and to take every single person down with the weapon of love. The same way that we were destroyed by the weapon of love and and God's love came and pierced us and reconciled us to him, it is our job to take that same love and reconcile the world to God in the same way. Said another way, the same way he built his kingdom in me, it is my job then to build a kingdom in others. So the question now, practically, what does that mean? How are we going to expand the kingdom? How are we going to take over the world? What does that mean? Preach on the corner? The kingdom of heaven is at hand? Uh, Does that mean we need to uh, go baptize people in the street? Does it mean we need to uh, build a whole bunch of churches? Does it mean we need to pass that whole bunch of... Like, what does it mean practically? How can you and I expand God's kingdom in a practical way? I want to answer that question... But before I answer it specifically, let's go back in time a little bit. And let's look at God's plan for his kingdom. We'll go back to the very start of the Bible. Genesis chapter 1 is a story of creation. God created uh, the light and the darkness, the sun and the moon, the plants and the trees. God created every living thing and everything on this earth God created. And then after God created man, his crowning achievement, what was the very next thing that God did? Look in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7 and 9. It says, The Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. What did God do next? The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Out of the ground the Lord God made, made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What did God do? Kind of strange. He made man. His crowning achievement. And then what did he do? He didn't throw a party. He didn't light a candle, make a cake, neon signs, man is here. Like he didn't do any of that stuff. He planted a garden. God wanted to have a garden. Why did God want to have a garden? What was the garden? What was the garden? The garden was home. The garden was where man lived. And who else lived in that garden? God lived in the garden. That's why it says the tree of life was there. The tree of life is is like a type of Christ himself. So God created man. He didn't send him off into the world. God created man, and then God made a home for man, and said, come and live here, and I'm going to live here with you. And man and God lived in the garden together. We don't know how long it was. Okay, Bible doesn't tell us, but they lived there for quite some time until man messed things up a little bit in the garden. And we don't want to get into all those details, but you know how it went. And unfortunately, because of man's mess up, man had to leave the garden. And now all of a sudden, God, who just wanted to live in a house with Adam, and he wanted to have that unity, that communion together, Now, all of a sudden, man got kicked out of the garden. Now, God's house, God was in it, but man was outside of it. So what did God do? Forget that idea. Oh, well, we gave it a shot. What God did, rest of the book of Genesis, all right, is about how God didn't give up on man. And God started to work now with man through Abraham, through Isaac, through Jacob, through Joseph. God started to work to tell man Okay, who was outside the garden that I want you to live in this house with me. That's why I made this house. I want you to live inside it with me. I want you to be my children. I want you to be my bride. I want you to be my family. So he started to work this back into their mind that they are the family of God. And then all of it culminates, okay, when they're in Egypt and they're as slaves and Moses is in charge. And then they break free from the bad guys and they get to the point where they're free. And then they cross the Red Sea and a great miracle, and now they are free. The bad guys have died. The children of God are free to live with God. That story we pick up that story in Exodus 25, all right? And watch what it says, or Exodus 24. People of God now have crossed the Red Sea. They're free. They're no more slaves. And once they're in the wilderness uh, during this time, then God gives them the Ten Commandments and says, "Don't murder. Don't kill. Uh, don't steal. Don't lie. Don't have other false gods." Gives them all these rules. And then after that, Exodus 24. So Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the judgments. And the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord has said we will do. Then he took the book of the covenant and read in the hearing of all the people. And they said, All that the Lord has said we will do and be obedient. What happened? They're in the wilderness. God said, Okay, now that you guys are free... Let me tell you what I expect of you. Don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. And the people said, amen, we agree, we will be your people. That's verse 7. Watch what happens in verse 8. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. Was the very next thing that happened. We agree to all your rules. Okay, let's build a house and live together. Why? You know what the rules are? The Ten Commandments? The Ten Commandments are an engagement period. And the Ten Commandments are God saying to his people, I propose to you, but if I propose to you, these are the conditions. And you shouldn't do this, and you shouldn't do this, you shouldn't do this. And then if you accept, we can live together. And when God gives us the conditions, it's not, don't look at it in a bad way, it's like me to my wife saying, I wanna marry you. But if I'm gonna marry you, you can't marry other boys. Okay, like these are the rules, and we agree. And you can't, like, steal money out of my pocket, all right? These are the rules, all right? And you can't, like, you know, come after one of our children one day. Like, these are the rules of marriage. And if you agree to these rules, and we both agree, let's buy a house and live together. Because everybody knows, everybody knows that the fun stuff in marriage happens when you're in a house together, not outside the house. All the pre-house stuff is nice, but married people, the fun stuff is when there's a house, and God is telling us the same thing. God is saying, I want to live in a house together. And I want us to have communion together. And I want us to have intimacy. So build me a sanctuary. I built a garden. Y'all messed up the garden. Now, take two. Let's build me a sanctuary. And look what it even says in verse 9. According to all that I show you, that is the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furnishings, just so you shall make it. Just as with the Garden of Eden... God took very meticulous details, all right, and put this here and put that in here. And it says, God formed the garden by his own hand. Same thing when it came to the tabernacle, which was God's presence among the people where they dwelt together. God was very, very particular in how it should be created. Why? Because this was God's dream house where man and him would live together. Now, let me ask you a question that I hope you're thinking right now does god need a house like he's god i just said a minute ago that god and his kingdom are real but invisible or unseen so does god really care about a physical house like god is spirit so god just wants spiritual houses and live in our hearts spiritually why does god care about a physical building Why did God care to build a tabernacle? Why did God care to have a temple? Why does God care to have churches today? Does God care about physical or only spiritual? Here's the answer to the question. God does care about physical homes because our God is an incarnational God. Our God is an incarnational God. Let me explain to you what that means. Incarnational comes the word incarnate. right, which is when God up in heaven wanted to reach out to man on earth, God took flesh. He became flesh and bone and he became just like me and you. We got eyes, he had eyes. We got ears, he had ears, fingers, toes, everything that we had. We were born as little babies from our mommy's tummy. He was born like a little baby from his mommy's tummy. Every single thing just like us. That's why it says in Hebrews chapter 2 verse 14 and 17, inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, like us, that he might be merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. God, up in heaven, man down on earth. God, in order to communicate with man and reconcile man, God didn't shout up from heaven. God came down and took a form that man could relate to. Imagine like a teacher, okay, like uh, 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 an adult teacher talking to little three-year-olds, and I'm trying to teach them math or teach them phonics, teach them whatever. What does a teacher do? teacher gets down on one knee, goes to their level, and speaks to them in their language. Why? Not for the teacher's own sake, but for the sake of the student, because the student could not understand if the teacher stood up here and spoke in this kind of language. That's exactly what God did. God said, you as man, us as man, we cannot understand God, because He's divine and we're man, so let me come down to you, speak your language, come in the form that you came in, take no reputation, likeness of men, like a bond servant, totally made Himself of no reputation. Why? So He could relate to us. Jesus came as a baby, not as a king into this world. If He'd have come as a king, Jesus didn't come as a king to reign over us. Jesus came as a baby to be able to relate to us. And that's exactly why he wants a house. God wants to speak our language. And we as human beings, we understand certain things. And One of the things that we understand is that your house is where you have your family. Your house is the place where you can be totally yourself. Your house is the place that you are completely free with all, whatever it is that you come with, you are free inside your house. This is the way we think. That house means intimacy, house means communion, house means oneness with those who are inside. And God, to teach us that lesson, said build me a house so that I can live in here and then you can come in here and you can understand the spiritual lesson I'm trying to teach you. Think about all the Old Testament. All the Old Testament was this way. It was God being incarnational even before he was incarnate. God wanted to teach them, for example, that his son is the lamb of God who will be slain for the sins of the world. So what did God do to teach them this spiritual truth in an incarnational way? He said, go get me a lamb and make sure it's a lamb without blemish and slay that lamb. And take the blood of the lamb and put it here. Then I forgive you of your sins. Man, God doesn't care about lambs. God doesn't care if the blood is this way. He's trying to teach them a lesson that the lamb of God will be slain for your sins. So he teaches them this lesson. All the system of sacrifices, the idea of having an altar, all these things are God's way of teaching spiritual truths, unseen things, in visible, tangible kind of a manner. God doesn't need a home. And don't think that if there was no tabernacle, that God couldn't dwell on this earth. God didn't need a home any more than he needed a body. God didn't need a body for his sake. God wanted a body for our sake. that we could understand him and god doesn't want a sanctuary on this earth so that he could have a place to live but so that we could understand what it means to have communion with god we have this idea sometimes in our heads about uh body is bad spirit is good okay spirit like this whole concept of like the spirit and the flesh war against each other and we talked about this in the daniel plan How our bodies are created by God. They're not bad. Like God made us tangible. Get rid of this idea that we're two separate beings. Like a spirit inside this cage called the body. Get rid of that idea. Okay? It's actually a very bad idea. It could take you in very many wrong directions. God created us as a complete person. And as a person, we have a a, a body, we have a mind, we have a spirit. And God wants to relate to us on all three of those levels. So absolutely, God wants spiritual homes and a spiritual kingdom to relate to our spirits but he also wants us to have physical homes so that we as physical created beings can understand what does it mean to live with God. Fast forward now a little bit in the Old Testament. God built a garden, man destroyed it. God said, okay, build me a sanctuary, a tabernacle, which was basically like a movable tent kind of a thing. And this would be where God dwelt. Not in a symbolic way. This was not a symbol of God's presence. This was God's real presence on this earth. Okay, but again, it was invisible. So, seen, I'm sorry, unseen doesn't mean unreal. Okay, so I hope you get that. Build me a tabernacle, this movable altar thing. And then there came a guy named David. David now gets to a certain point in time. David, you know, was a man after God's own heart. The Bible said about David that no one's heart was closer to God's heart than David. And David got to a point in time when he loved God so much and he had such. A great desire to have intimacy with God and to be close with God. He was a man after God's heart. That David said, you know what? This movable tabernacle is not enough. God, I want to build you a permanent fixed home. Second, I'm sorry, go to this one. Second Samuel chapter 7 verse 1. Now it came to pass when the king was dwelling in his house that the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies all around that the king said to Nathan the prophet, this is the king David, see now, I dwell in a house of cedar but the ark of God dwells inside tent curtains. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. Well, King David is saying, How can it be that I and my family have this nice fancy house? We have a living room and a family room and a bedroom and a kitchen and, 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 and a bowling alley in the basement because I'm the king. Whatever it is that I may have. And God has a movable tent thing where the, the get moved so many times that the left curtain thing is leaning over. the, How can it be? He's desired to give God, said, my greatest honor, I want to give God a home, a fixed place where he can dwell in his glory and it can be assigned to the nations and everyone can know God lives here. What did the prophet Nathan tell him? He said, go, do what is in your heart. The Lord is with you. You know what the Lord is with you means? It means you got this, man. God is with you. God is behind this. God loves what you're saying. And God is going to support you. And God is going to bless you in everything that you do. And what happened is David then began to prepare to build the temple. All right? We always say that Solomon built the temple. But actually, David did more work for the temple than Solomon. He just didn't take the final piece. All right? We're going to fast forward through David's life. And this is what David says to Solomon right before he dies. He says, Now David said, Solomon, my son, is young and inexperienced. The house to be built for the Lord must be exceedingly magnificent, famous, and glorious throughout all countries. I will now make preparation for it. So David made abundant preparations before his death. David is the one who prepared everything for Solomon. The wood, the laborers, the design, the everything. All Solomon did was just kind of put the, the sign of the cross on it at the end and let it go. That's all Solomon did. He said a prayer, when it opened, but David's the one who did all the work. It goes on, 1 Chronicles 22, verse 14. Indeed, I have taken much trouble to prepare for the house of the Lord 100,000 talents of gold, 1 million talents of silver. This is David's donation. This is what he's giving. Bronze and iron beyond measure, for, so, for it is so abundant. I have prepared timber and stone also, and you may add to them. Moreover, there are workmen. He took care of the labor force as well. With you in abundance, woodsmen and stonecutters, and all types of skillful men for every kind of work of gold and silver. and bronze and iron, there is no limit. Arise and begin working, and the Lord be with you finishes up in verse 19. Now set your heart and your soul to seek the Lord your God. Therefore arise and build the sanctuary of the Lord God. You see how he connected worship with the sanctuary. Set your heart to seek God, to have that intimacy with God, desire God, and now build a sanctuary because the two are connected. What the house was, was the place where that intimacy was. You know, in the Old Testament, a lot of the Old Testament is centered around building God a house, the temple or the tabernacle. In the New Testament, you never hear temple or tabernacle. You know what you hear instead? The same amount of attention and focus is given to a place called the kingdom of God. Old Testament, you hear very rarely about the kingdom of God. You hear about the temple. New Testament, you hear rarely about temple. You hear kingdom of God. Because you know what? The two are the same. In that what the temple was, was a foreshadowing for the kingdom of God, which we speak about in the New Testament. Now let's fast forward a few more thousand years to 2014. And the scene is now Arlington, Virginia. And what we are talking about here, why I am so excited, is because I believe strongly that God has called us to do this same work. To build a sanctuary for Him. To build a house where He may dwell. And just like King David says as a place that all the nations would know that he dwells there and as a place where his people can have that intimacy and worship of God that he desires to have. And God, just as he did here with David, when he put it on our hearts and we said, God, is this what you want us to do? We got an overwhelming, the Lord be with you. Go do all that is in your heart. The Lord is with you. What we're going to do over the next three weeks Okay, today I'll give like a little brief intro, but really starting next week is we're going to look at three characters from the Bible who built physical buildings in order to expand the spiritual, the unseen but very real kingdom of God. We we'll look at people who built physical in order to expand the kingdom of God. We're going to look at guy named Ezra, guy named Nehemiah, and someone from the New Testament. But I want to keep him as a surprise till the very end. And we're going to see the lessons that we learn from them and how they might apply to us here in Arlington. And the first one that I'm going to talk about today is Ezra. And we're just going to, I'm just going to go through the first five verses of Ezra real quick and learn two quick lessons. We'll get into the details of Ezra beginning next week. Ezra's a guy in the Old Testament. If you go to the chronology of the Old Testament, like if creation was there at the beginning and Jesus coming is right there, Ezra is right about here, okay, in the story of the Old Testament. By the time Ezra comes around, the children of Israel, David, kingdom, Solomon, and then they divided into two kingdoms. And, and Ezra is part of the southern kingdom of Judah, which was the ch- where, where the temple was, but they disobeyed God. Because they disobeyed God, they were destroyed. The bad guys, the Babylonians came, took over the country, okay, killed many, 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 many people in a savage, brutal kind of a way. And those who did not get killed were taken as captives and now live in a place called Babylon under the rule of the Babylonians. But throughout the time that they're here, God kept making a promise. I will bring you back and I will rebuild my house. I will bring you back and I will rebuild my house. Why did God care so much about this house? Because that was where the worship was. That was where the intimacy was. God could have said, if God didn't care about a house, say, okay, just worship me right there. Just just build a little hut and we'll just worship right there. But no, God connected the temple to his people living with him. So God said, I will restore the temple and I will work and you guys will come back to where it is that you belong. All right, and we'll pick up the story there. Ezra chapter 1, verse 1. The story starts, now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, oh, I'm sorry, I forgot part of the context, they were taken into Babylon, and they were ruled by the Babylonians, but then someone else came and invaded Babylon, who was the Persians, all right, so now they're in Babylon, but they're no longer ruled by the Babylonians, they're ruled by the Persians, and Cyrus is the king of the Persians, okay, so that's who is the ruler here. First year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. Watch this, right off the bat, verse 1, verse 1. Verse 1 of the book. Verse 1. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, Cyrus, before I tell you what he said, Cyrus is a believer, not believer. He's a Persian, so he's a believer, not believer. Not believer. He doesn't care anything about God. Cyrus is a king, and he cares about his military He cares about his country, cares about his idols that he worships. He doesn't care anything about God. He makes a decree and he puts it in writing. What's that decree? Verse 2. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, All the kingdoms of the earth the Lord God of heaven has given me, and he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Excuse me? I beg your pardon? You don't know nothing about God. You're not part of his kingdom. You're not part of his household. You out of the blue come and say, God has commanded me to build him a house over there at Judah. This doesn't make any sense. It goes on. Who is among you of all his people? May his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. He is God, which is in Jerusalem. Look, I don't know what happened. I don't know how this happened. I don't know if Cyrus was dreaming one day and he saw a vision of heaven. I don't know. I don't know if it was the handwriting on the wall. I don't know if, if like a donkey came and kicked him in the back of the head. We don't know what happened. But God, out of the blue, when these people were captive, had no hope of returning back. They had no military power. They had no financial power. They had nothing. They had absolutely nothing. They didn't even have a hope that they would go back because it made no sense. And then all of a sudden, The most powerful man in the world, king of the Persian Empire, who defeated the great Babylonian Empire, comes and says, an official decree, we're going to build the house of God. Excuse me? I beg your pardon? Yeah, we're going to build the house of God. And you, children of God, you're going to go build it. And he goes and tells them, whatever it is that you need, actually that's the next verse, all right? He says, whoever's left in any place where he dwells, let the men of his place help him with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, besides the free will offerings of the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. He says, you all are going to go build a house. Well, how are we going to build the house? You're going to go to your neighbor, you're going to ask them for gold, for silver, for any kind of freewill offerings, anything that they're willing to offer, because God commanded me and I'm commanding you to go build the house of God. Does this make any sense to anybody? Can you see that this makes zero sense? This makes no sense, number one, if I'm the king of a country, it makes no sense that I would take my slaves and have them go build their own country. Like, I don't want them to go have a country, I want them to be slaves of my country. It makes no sense religiously. Why would I tell them to build a temple to their God? How about I build a temple to my God? Like, how did Cyrus, if he had this vision, temple, 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 he just said, okay, to my God, the God of the sticks, or the God of the moon, or the God of whatever. And even financially, It makes no sense. He's sending his country's assets, his gold and his silver, to build somebody else's temple. This makes no sense whatsoever. Lesson one of building the temple, of building God's kingdom, lesson one, God always takes the initiative. Lesson one, God always takes the initiative. We wouldn't be standing here today talking about we want to buy a church unless God had taken the initiative and taken 10 steps. And I promise you, That one day, I, I know a lot of people know a lot of parts of the story, but man, if I sit down and tell you the whole story, I'll show you 10 acts of God just like what happened with Cyrus. Just like what happened with Cyrus to get us to this point. When we saw this building which came randomly, came into our laps. And then we get there and there's obstacles and God clears the obstacles. And then the guy says, we don't want even you to look at it for a second visit because we got another person who wants to buy this building and we're far along in the process. And we say, okay, well, we'll pray. And then we find out later that the other person who was far along in the process where their realtor didn't want to talk to us, the other person vanished out of thin air. And I don't know if they're in a river somewhere. I don't know where they exist right now. But they're not in the picture whatsoever. And we're the only one in the picture. And then we have this last obstacle, this thing about, oh, we need to somehow collect $2 million in cash. And I'm telling you, if I hadn't seen obstacle one, two, three, four, five, and 6, God take care of them, then I might be a scared man right now. But I'm telling you, me, the most conservative person in this room, has no doubt that we are going to collect every single penny of that $2 million in cash to put it towards that house because God has the one who has promised us. And God is the one who is taking the initiative. And if God wakes Cyrus up and sends the people over there, and then they get over here and they start building, they say, well, I don't know how we're going to finish. How are you going to finish? Don't you worry, man. If God got you this far, man, he's got this whole situation under control. I love this verse from Proverbs 21, verse 1. It says, The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord like the rivers of water. He turns it wherever he wishes. Y'all know what that verse means? The king, Cyrus... Cyrus, Lord, how are we going to rebuild the temple? Cyrus is a mean guy. He's a bad guy. He'll never let us go. Cyrus who? Cyrus mean that guy on earth whose heart in my hand is like a river and it moves. You want to move the king's heart? There you go. Don't you worry about kings. Don't you worry about money. Don't you worry about people who are against you. If the Lord is with us, then who can be against us? God always takes the initiative and we wouldn't be where we are today in this process unless God had made it abundantly clear that this is his desire for us to build him a house, a place where he may dwell. Now, lesson number two that we get from Ezra is that God starts the initiative and then when God acts, our job is to respond swiftly and courageously. We respond swiftly and courageously to the initiative that God takes. Back to the story of Ezra. King comes out of left field, says, y'all gonna go back and build a house in Jerusalem. What do the people do? Fast and pray? Ask advice from their spiritual fathers? What do the people do? Verse 5, okay, after the decree. Then the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, the priests and the Levites, with all whose spirits God had moved, arose to go up and build the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. And all those who were around them encouraged them with articles of silver and gold, with goods and livestock, with precious things besides all that was willingly offered. They didn't wait. They didn't pray. They didn't fast. They didn't think. God moved. They took action. They arose the next day. And why do I say that they not acted swiftly only? Not only acted swiftly, but acted courageously. Why did it take great courage to do what they were going to do? They had now been... (laughs) In Babylon for probably three generations worth okay so the, the 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 people who are our age okay their parents were there and now they have children there okay so we can say it like that so they've been there probably 60 70 years at this point in time and by now they had established homes they had jobs like that back there when we left there that place was on fire that place was destroyed and the people who got left They had nothing. They became beggars in the street, and a lot of them, most of them died of starvation. Anyone who's still around the area is vagabonds, okay, nomads, and and bad people. Yeah, we're going to pick up our stuff and move back there to do what? To build a temple? Man, it took a lot of courage to go. It took a lot of courage to make those free will offerings, to say, you know what? We got something going on here, but we believe that that is what God is moving us to do, so we will contribute. And we will, you know what, take a leave of absence from work, and we'll go learn how to build a temple. And what needs easy to do what they did. And in the book of Ezra, I won't read it to you. This is chapter 1. Chapter 2, if you go read Ezra when you go home, it's probably the most boring book in the Bible. All right, most boring chapter in the Bible, because all it is is a list of names. It's a list of 50,000 people. Okay, not every one of the 50,000 names. But all the heads of houses, and it says so-and-so in his household of ten was there. And so-and-so in his tribe, and so-and-so in his tribe. All the people who went over there and it listed. It's like 75 verses of name after name after name after name after name after name. And it says all the people who courageously went back to go build the house of God. Now here's what I want to show you about that, or I want to tell you about that. At Ezra 1, God says, go. Ezra 2 God says, these are the people who went. These are the best people on earth. Ezra 3, the building begins. God honors those who went before they did anything. And actually what we're going to see when we read it next week is these guys actually didn't accomplish the mission. They actually fell short. We'll we'll see that in a little bit. But my point is this, is God honored their courage. God honored their obedience. And their name is written in the book, which will last eternity. God said about this book, the book of the Bible, it says that not one word... Not one jot or not one tittle of everything that is written will ever pass away. And those people's names are written in indelible, permanent marker in the kingdom of God because they left their comfortable homes and they answered the call of God swiftly and courageously and went to build. One day there's going to be a story written about Arlington. There will be. We're going to get to heaven and we read the story of Ezra. All right, and what happened, how the temple was built in Jerusalem. And One day, there's going to be a story written about the, about the kingdom of Arlington. We made ourselves a kingdom, okay? And there's going to be lots of names written in there. There's also going to be some names who are not found in there. And those are the people who, like I said, 50,000 people responded and returned, but a lot of people didn't respond in return. And their name, they missed out on a golden opportunity. Let's imagine right now, okay? If it helps you to close your eyes, close your eyes. Let's imagine right now. Imagine right now that you're going to get to the kingdom. And like I said, there's a little section in the kingdom for Arlington. Okay, a little section. Small, okay, overpopulated, no parking, but ritzy, okay? Like a nice, fancy section of the kingdom for Arlington. And you're going to see people walking in and walking in and walking in. And you say, hey, how'd you get here? And they're going to say, let me tell you the story. Before me... There was this courageous group of people in the year 2014. And these guys built a temple. And I found that temple in 2015 or 16 or 17 or 37 or whatever it may be. But their story is written in indelible ink here. Because these were the guys who courageously responded to the call of God to build God's kingdom. Starting next week, we're going to look at how they built And the challenges and the obstacles and all that stuff. But that stuff is all for next week. Today, as you see in the title of your handout, today is the call. Today, God is moving us. And by the way, if you don't live here in Arlington, if you're visiting from someplace else, this applies to you wherever it is that you live. Because God's kingdom shouldn't just be in Arlington. So God should have a kingdom in the United Kingdom. All right. God should have a kingdom wherever you're watching this online or wherever it is that you're watching this is God wants you to build his kingdom wherever it may be. I'm, I'm speaking Arlington because I'm in Arlington. Okay, you speak wherever it is that you are. We're not just trying to build God's kingdom here. We don't care about anywhere else. It's God's big kingdom we're talking specifically about right here. Today is the call. Don't worry about the details. We'll get to the details next week. We'll get to that, what should we do? and ha- We'll get to all that kind of stuff. and obstacles. We'll get to all that stuff. But today, I'm inviting you to be part of a kingdom-building team. A team of people who hear the call of God to say, "Build me a house to dwell in, build me a place where my name may dwell perpetually," and the people of God arise and say, "We are in, we are all in, whatever that may be, and whatever your contribution is, we're starting this thing as we're doing, <clears throat> as we're doing this campaign. It's called One Brick. Okay, you see the little uh, logo right there. Maybe you can't see it too well. Hashtag One Brick. One Brick." means whatever your one brick is if your one brick is to donate financially more power to you man you make a donation and then you say my one brick is i donated and some people say well i can't donate or i'm already donating but i want to do more so maybe your one brick is to one of the things that we're doing like i said i announced earlier today is we're sending letters okay not letters begging for money please give us money because we're going to lose we're not begging letters saying this is what god is calling us to do here this is the mission and the vision that we believe in and we are inviting you if you believe in it to support this mission by whatever way you can don't think that it's begging for money what it is is just like it was an ezra announce to the people what you are doing and let them have a chance to make an offering because i have blessed people with gold and silver and give them a chance to be part of this mission so you say my one brick is I'm going to show up after we finish the well here. We're having an envelope stuffing party in room 121 right after this. We're going to order some pizza, or we're going to stuff some envelopes, we're going to mail them out tomorrow morning. My one brick is I'm going to stuff some envelopes. Some of you say my one brick is I'm actually going to take some envelopes because we printed extra, and I'm going to send it to my grandma and my grandpa and my senile uncle, wherever he is, because he just gives money to whoever sends him a letter. My one brick is I'm going to send some letters. Whatever your one brick is, all right? Whatever it might be, is you do it, and we're actually doing this little social media thing if you're on Twitter or Facebook, that you get the little one brick, okay, back in the back you'll see a little one brick poster just like this, okay, and then you do something, okay, do something, and then you write on there, my one brick is, and then you post it on social media and you hashtag one brick, and we tweet it out to the world, and we want everybody, because this isn't just about building, collecting money. This is about people getting excited to build God's kingdom wherever it is that they may be. All right. Leave you all with this verse. Second or 1 Chronicles 28.10 is our theme verse for this campaign. Consider now, for the Lord has chosen you to build a house for the sanctuary. Be strong and do it. Let's stand up together and say a prayer. <clears throat> In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, when God, amen. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity that you're giving us here To be part of building your kingdom here in Arlington or wherever we may be. I pray, Lord, that you would stir up hearts. That you would move within, within people's spirits. To be part of building your kingdom in whatever small little way that they can. And we pray, Lord, that truly your kingdom would come. That your will be done. And that your kingdom would come in every single place that we step foot into. That we could take your kingdom with us. We could expand your kingdom. So that when we finish this life, Lord, we don't just have a house that we can look back or a car or a career, but we can look at an eternal kingdom that we were contributed to being part of it. We thank you, Lord, for the great work that you have done, that you are doing, and that you, we know that you will continue to do here through STSA and through your church here and church all over the world. Accept our prayer in the name of your Son with the prayers and intercessions of all your saints. Here us says, we pray thankfully, our Father